Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is... Dr. Lawrence M. Schoen, author, psychologist, hypnotist, and Klingonist. And uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back here. Yeah, the last time you were here, we were talking about your last Barsk novel, which was awesome. That's a while ago. Yeah, the Elephant's Graveyard. No, that was the first one. That was that was the first. The second one was the Moons of Barsk. Collect the whole set. We'd like to. Okay. And if you get the stretch goals going, we could. Boy, well, was that a great, <laughs> great transition or what? So you've got a Kickstarter. Because that Kickstarter isn't running yet, but um, we can talk about that too if you like. Sure. Yeah, what so now? <laughs> well, well, it is. It is at the top of our topics list. I see. Okay, fair enough. Um, Transcendent Boston and other stories. Ah, that's the Kickstarter that's running right now. Um, and I'm happy to say that it's funded. Even though this is pre-recorded, it's already funded. Holy um, cow, that's great. Yeah, but it will still be running probably by the time uh, your listeners get to hear this so they can throw more money at it. Um, it's a very modest Kickstarter. I'm, I'm fairly new to Kickstarter. This is only my second attempt to do so. And the idea here, uh, Transcendent Boston is actually is a short story. It's the Kickstarter project is for Transcendent Boston and other stories. Uh, my sixth collection. Um, what makes this collection a little different is I was realizing, um, over the years, I've been invited to participate in a number of themed anthologies or charity projects or, or things of that nature where, you know, I write a story, I send it in, they publish it, yay. Uh, and then, because this is the way the world works, uh, the rights get returned to me usually within three months or six months, uh, presumably uh-huh. so I can turn around and sell it somewhere else. Um, if I don't do that... and the odds are pretty good that I won't because it's already been published so nobody else wants it now Um, that story vanishes you know into oblivion and as these piled up I realized that was unacceptable to me Uh, my ego is sufficient that I believe you know all my work should be out there somewhere so I took a bunch of them and that became the backbone for uh, this new collection uh, so there are stories that, that came out that were well-received, and then the anthologies went away, as um, typically anthologies of that sort, uh, themed anthologies or charity projects, they come and go. Uh, Transcendent Boston, the title story, was written uh, last year for a charity anthology that was trying to keep a woman in Eastern Europe in her home, I think she's an 80-year-old woman, in her home. Um, because evil relatives of her former housemate wanted her out, or something to that effect. I don't want to don't want to um, libel somebody here, but um, I wrote the story for that anthology. It went out. It raised money. The rights uh, revert back to me on June first, and I said, "Hey, I really liked that story. Let's let's put it in a collection." And and that became the cornerstone. 
so I believe it has 18 stories, and we're already funded, so it's going to happen. Uh, and now we're in the process of knocking out uh, stretch goals. And each stretch goal that we unlock, I'll throw in another of my past collections for free. Now how much would you pay, right? Uh, it chops, uh-huh. it slices, it dices, and all of that. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm happy to get to stretch goals because that's the part of Kickstarter that I think is just so cool. You know, you've already supported a project. You believed in the project. You liked the project. It, fine. Maybe you supported it at the, the minimal level, right? Five bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And then, unbeknownst to you, enough other people did that that suddenly you start unlocking these stretch goals and everybody gets more stuff. And the great thing about ebooks is... You know, it's they're not taking up space in a warehouse. I'm not dealing with printing costs. It and and I'm not shipping anything. These get sent out as attachments on an email, along with the original anthology, mm-hmm. part of the original collection ebook, and everybody wins. And I I just think that's very cool about stretch goals. If you're doing if you're doing you know digital stretch goals, if the stretch goals are and I send you my dog, uh, that gets a little trickier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the stretch goals that we've had on our kickstarters and, and uh, uh, funding operations, we have a Patreon campaign, and and we have perks as well. But they're all they're all silly. Yeah, th- well, they're all service. <laughs> they're they're all based on uh, uh, services, really. Um, if you well, if we you don't s- have anthologies. We we could run it run yeah. your ad though. Yeah, we sell advertising blocks, and uh, and our Patreon uh, supporters, uh, the bigger ones, b- end up with advertising on the radio. So it's a heck of a deal. The only thing I have like that is I offered Tuckerizations uh, for this collection. So uh, only yes. five of them. Ever the ever popular Tuckerization. Yeah. For I forget what it was. I think seventy five dollars. Well, I, yes. In fact, I I've, I've ponied up for one, so I want to see right. what you do. So we'll see how that works out for you. So, um, because not all of the stories in this collection have previously been published, uh, the ones that are unique cause, because I I I like getting collections where I haven't you know if I'm a if I'm a fan of the author, it's nice to have them all in one place. But I want there to be new things I haven't couldn't possibly have read yet. So there are a number of. Uh, original stories or stories that are original to this collection and and i can go in and change those names uh, <laughs> yeah so, oh yes so susan will end up in one of those um and and there is a story in there uh it's only appeared to um i think some of my patreon uh supporters it's a p and, and we're bringing this around full circle when i wrote uh the moons of barsk uh, there was a big reveal, and it came too early in the book. And my editor said, "You're ruining this. Cut it entirely so that later on, when we have the big reveal, we can all gasp in surprise." And he was absolutely right. But I had this little scene, and I liked it, um, and I tucked it away. And and it's a short little story uh, that now will appear in this collection. Um, and and for, without giving any spoilers. Uh, because I think there may be people out there who haven't read The Moons of Barsk. Uh, it's the character of Daphne, and it describes mm-hmm. her arrival um, on the island of Keslo, uh, where all the event, most of the events of the novel uh, unfold. So I think there's room in there for me to slip in um, Susan's name. Cool. We'll see. I have to look more closely. <laughs> I may not be a fox. I may be an elephant, and that's all right. We'll see. It we'll might see. be Susan Locks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You you strike me as more of an uh, an elf, but but uh, that's okay. I was right. Uh, they're they're important too. True. So uh, thank thank you for snatching up one of the uh, the Tuckerizations. In fact, four of the five have already gone. Wow. Uh, that's but, that's great. It, I was surprised, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I I wanted to ensure this this would fund, so it has a very very low um, goal uh, funding goal of, of only a thousand dollars. So that was that was pretty easy to, to fund, uh, and anything over that is is 
kind of gravy. Mmm, um, gravy. Mmm, yummy. But, um, no one has snatched up the big prize, the, the super supporter prize. I think uh, for $600, the entire book gets dedicated to you. Oh, so, my. Sci-fi radio listeners out there with, you know, if you've just gotten your tax return and it's burning a hole in your pocket, there's still time. I think there's uh, 13 days left to the campaign as we record this, so um, do the math, you folks at home. Um, you've probably got a, at least a week to get in there and push it. Push, 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 and, and yay. Um, so that's my, that's the Kickstarter. Um the other reason I'm I'm doing this Kickstarter is I want to get more familiar and more comfortable uh, with the workings of Kickstarter because mm -hmm. somewhere down the road I want to fund or attempt to fund the third Barsk novel. Ah. Uh, Tor books only only you know bit for for two, and I always planned it as a trilogy. So I I have the third book all outlined and. You know, I'd submitted a proposal, and they said, "Yeah, this is too weird, Lawrence. Uh, thanks, but no thanks." Uh, okay, and I said, "The first two books were weird." I said, "We're we're full up on weird." Straight um, straight up, so, science fiction is supposed to be weird. I, I mean, that isn't that. I thought that was the point. Yeah. How how is it going to be weirder than the first two? Is yes, my question. but publishers are supposed to make money. Um, well, if if you know, there's there Barsk always uh, has has sort of paralleled certain classics of science fiction so if um if the first novel uh can be likened to frank herbert's dune um the second novel is much like um uh foundation and empire and the third <laughs> novel is uh heinlein's stranger in a strange land oh now i'm intrigued so i needed to get more experience with kickstarter because that book is going to take a lot of my time to write, and I need to, you know, have an income for that time. Um, so that's not going to be a simple $1,000 Kickstarter. It's it's not going to be a, a $41 million Kickstarter like, like Brandon does, but um, somewhere in between those two numbers is the sweet spot. Um, because I'd really like to be able to reach out to the cover artist, the brilliant artist, Victor Ngai, who did the first two covers, and see if I can maybe somehow afford to have her do uh, the cover for this. Um, but we'll see. That, that's why I'm learning about Kickstarters uh, and, and, and running little projects like this so I can figure that out. And, and ideally to build my base so that I can reach out to enough people and say, hey, do you need more science fiction elephants in your life? Um, so we'll see. That's the goal. I keep pushing it further and further back. I don't think it's going to happen in this calendar year. Uh, but there will there will be a Kickstarter. If you if you had video, you would see my shaking my finger, you know, authoritatively. There will be a Kickstarter uh, for the next Barsk novel. Um, and. As was established uh, from the very beginning with each book, everything you believe to be true from the earlier books is wrong. Uh, because that's just fun. Okay. That, what, that, that's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. There's layers upon layers in every reality. One hopes. Elephants that, are you know, apparently I, like I onions. I don't have to, you know, pay attention so much to what I'm doing and worry about people correcting me because if I say it out front, everything I told you before is wrong, um, then I'm covered. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one that's one approach. Didn't uh, this character die in book one? Maybe, maybe you're mistaken. Um, he was just resting. Yeah, just resting. Yeah, well, the uh, whole uh, the whole transcendental nature of. Uh, the, the lives of the bar the the denizens of Barsk uh, allows for a great deal of leeway in that regard. Well, since people talk to the dead, well, <laughs> you know, well, in, it doesn't the stop third, them from being a character. In in the third book, uh, and and I'm pulling this from memory because I haven't thought about this in months. Uh, but in the third book, we find out the truth about where humanity went. Oh, I wanted to know about that. And and we find out. Um, 
there's there's a philosophical question that that I'd had from the very beginning. We're talking, I don't know what, twenty years now. Um, the idea, and this is a spoiler from the first book, the idea that um, you can hardwire language into a species that doesn't have language. Um, that you know you give them that that facility to acquire language, and more. You actually lock the lang, you dump the language in. They get. You know, like a box off a shelf here, you get English as understood by this guy that we modeled it from, which is why the languages in, in, in the Barsk universe don't evolve. They keep resetting every every time with, it, with every individual being born. Um, but if you have the facility to, in effect, put language into somebody and, and all the cognitive tasks that that involves, what happens when you do that? To a human being who already has that ability, what bonus things do you get? Sounds to uh, me like you're you're just as likely to break something. Well, <laughs> in a psychological sense, that's probably very true. Uh, and and what you get are uh, beings that are as as far advanced over normal humans as one would think cognitively humans are above non-uplifted animals hmm. and then you know things happen and we carry forward I don't remember how many tens of thousands of years Barsk is set in the future very far in the future because by the time we get to Barsk there's the whole alliance and there are hundreds and hundreds of planets that have been settled and it's a big place and it's busy and nobody remembers humanity. And then we get someone who was born on Earth showing up. Oh, okay. I was wondering about that because, well, spoiler reasons, I didn't think that would happen. Well, it's in there. What it's can in I there. Tell we'll you? find um, out. We'll so find out what the, after the next Kickstarter when we've all contributed. There we go. Um, that That is the hope. But in the meantime... Um, there has been a, a novella uh, called Soup of the Moment uh, that came out, I think, a year or so ago, which is a Barsk prequel. Um, and it's the story behind the story. It's the true, <clears throat> the true fictional account of, of a fairy tale from Barsk, which is mentioned in the background of the second chapter of, of the first novel. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's the story of, of the font who could fly, uh, which at the time was a cheap allusion to Dumbo. I was just, uh-huh. that but, song uh, was going uh, through my, I've sure. seen just about sure. everything if I've seen an elephant fly. Um, but then I turned it into something a little darker. And, well, actually, no, Dumbo's pretty dark. Um, a different kind of dark. A different kind of dark, and, and, and it became an issue about... Um, it became a feminist story, actually, about um, choosing family over career um, and such things and laying the groundwork. And I had to write the story because there's something I want to put in book three. And I had to to drop the details in a, in, a, in a novella so I could, you know, suddenly say, look, it's here. It's it's a typical time travel dilemma. Oh, man, I forgot to do this. Wait, let's go back in time. Uh, Bill and Ted drop the keys to the car behind the sofa or something like that. And <laughs> there it is. And now we can drive away. Um, so the novella fulfills that purpose. Lovely. Um, and, and now I can do that important scene in book three. But it also tells the story of the font who could fly and, and how she did it and what she had to sacrifice along the way. Um, and I'm working on a story, a novella set in between the two novels called Pislow's Limits, uh, because Pislow is such a fun character, right? He's a very popular character for readers. And I wanted to explore this 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 poor kid who's you know, he has three people in his life who will acknowledge his existence. Um, and he's got all these special powers. Um, and he's confused and bewildered and trying to find his way in the world. And the his main teacher, his, his uh, mentor, gets too busy um, to really give him the attention that he needs. Um, 
And before that happens, uh, the, no, no, the novella is five conversations uh, between Jorl and Pislo about how the world works. Uh, this, and this is before in book two when he, he goes and tries to apply the hero's journey to his own life and gets it horribly wrong. <laughs> um, so this is, this is things like why font don't wear hats <laughs> I don't know where they'd put be, one be, I mean, because it's... it's racially insensitive um, and goes back to the difference between Elif and Lox uh, and that that novella is about halfway done but it was prompted because a fan reached out to me and said I love Barsk and I'm an artist may I send you an oil painting ooh and it's this beautiful, beautiful image of of Jorl. It's just like the heads gazing out at you. There's Jorl, and then smaller, and in front of him is is the visage of Pislo, you know, an albino younger elephant, and there's a little butterfly on his trunk. Oh. Um, and I looked at this and I said, "Well, this has to be the cover of a book." So um, it will be, and I'm I'm hoping awesome. to return to that this year as well it's a busy time i got too much going on in april i really overdid it yeah, yeah. you kind of did you just had RavenCon and all that raven yeah well even as we speak on the air right uh raven con is um coming up this weekend for me it's still two days away uh time travel it's a it's it's crazy but that's what that's life on the event horizon right it is yeah um it's that timey-wimey stuff <laughs> uh but you know RavenCon, which is a glorious convention and and i don't i say that not just because i was their guest of honor um a few years ago uh and my plush buffalito berry was also a guest of honor a plush guest of honor so that's cool <laughs> how many plushies can say that not I many i can't not think many. of many no. yeah, part, no. and and not just because most plushies can't speak but um it's a great convention and and i had wanted to go and their hotel block sold out almost overnight it seemed and because of my health uh i really need to be on site Mm-hmm. So I didn't even look at the overflow hotel. I didn't even care if it was just like across the street. It's not. It's 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 near, but it's not you know right across the street because even that would just be too much. Um, so I figured, okay, I'll miss it. Uh, haven't been there in seven years. It'll be okay, uh, and they haven't had one in three years, so it'll still be okay. Uh, but then a friend of mine who was on a wait list, uh, the wait list popped, and he he got a room, and he reached out and he said, "Do you want to go?" And I said, great, how am I getting there and back? And he said, oh, I can drive you back, but I'm, I'm coming from the south, so uh, you need to get a ride there. And then somebody else offered me a ride because, again, same problem. Because of health, I'll be just broken trying to drive down there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's about five hours from, from where I am. So uh, I'm going to be a passenger, and, and that'll be wonderful. And I'm very much looking forward to just just hanging out with tribe you know and i it's further south than i normally get so there's a whole group of people that i haven't seen in a decade not just i haven't seen you since the pandemic started or since i got sick but uh much longer than that and and so that will be a sheer delight um and then the convention, you know, I, I reached out to them just last week and I said, you know, I know registration is closed. I'm happy to pay up front at the door. Uh, but could I get a sticker on my badge so I can hang out in the green room? Because that's where all my friends are going to be. And they said, how, how about if we put you on programming instead? <laughs> well, that's one way. Yeah, uh, that'll do it. So I'm going to have a reading and check this out. Listen to this cool segue I've just created. I have a reading and I'm going to read from the new book, Soul Bottles, which just came out today or for your listeners, just came out uh, earlier this week. Um, an urban fantasy that I wrote with Brian Thorne. And it's the first in a series. And it's coming out from uh, LMBPN Publishing, which for me is a new publisher. So it's a new book in a subgenre I don't normally write in uh, with a new publisher. And oh my God, it's all happening today. Um, and I'm excited to read from it because it's, it's new and I've, I've never done a reading from the book. So we'll see how that goes. But I'm hopeful. Um, I don't know how is how is your imp or, or demon uh, language skills. 
Well, there's, you know, we've written three books now, uh, and we actually don't show you any of the of the demon of the demonic languages because that would be irresponsible. It would. Uh, in in one of the books, we do put up a big image on a wall and start moving semantic elements around and dropping things in from different languages for those languages that are agglutinative uh, there's a word your listeners can look up uh, and and playing with things playing with the the concept of language as a source of magic and and what happens if you apply different linguistic principles to it uh, which nobody had ever done before in in this universe um, so it gets it gets kind of fun uh, and we're waiting to see how these first three books do. We have plans for an, at least another three books, and the the story just keeps unfolding and getting stranger. Uh, and in fact, LMBPN is is an indie press. Uh, they're like the eight hundred pound gorilla of indie presses because they they put out like three hundred books a year or something ridiculous like that. That is so. Does, yeah, does it's, Torp? publish that many no i don't no. think yeah but but tor also has you know different kinds of expenses they they've got a a team of people running around the bookstores trying to get shelf space and most indie work is focused primarily on digital mm-hmm. okay so there is there are different kinds of expenses uh and it's a completely different model for publishers and so forth uh for for uh authors rather so one of the things they like is to have books come out more regularly, by which I mean more frequently. So um, Soul Bottles uh, came out today. Book two comes out in about four weeks. It's called At the Speed of Yeti. It was available on Amazon uh, for pre-order when I looked earlier right. today. They put up the link. Uh, I'm waiting for, for them to put up the link for book three. Um, and I'm blanking out on the name. I can't I help you there. It wasn't online yet. Well, it's it's gone through so many iterations. I think we landed on undead alternatives, um, and because basically we have a necromancer who is killed and turned into an immortal leech, and then we kill him, and then we find a way to bring him back. Uh, well, that's what so, it gets for a life of necromancy, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's, all it's, this dying going on. It's a dangerous profession. That's all I can say. Um, so, you know, I have three books coming out over the course of, the, uh, of three months. Um, and then they're reprinting a science fiction trilogy that I also wrote with Brian Thorne right after. So I've got a book a month coming out for the next six months, plus the collection from the Kickstarter. And I really need to finish uh, book two of my novel, uh, of, of the second book in the Pizza in Space series, Slice of Chaos, uh, which is more whimsical. That's a great title. I like that. Yeah, I, yeah, I like that title, too. Right. That is, that is a lot of books. I think I baked one of those once in Slice of Chaos. <laughs> that is a lot of books in a very small space of time. You are, you are just a, a... A machine. Yeah, a science fiction writing monster. This is, this is impressive. Well, What's the really weird part of it is all of this productivity came out because I got sick, um, and and um, not to be coy, but also not to play for sympathy. Um, uh, about three years ago, I, I was diagnosed with an uh, an uncurable but treatable uh, form of cancer, um, and and you know everything changed. And I remember my wife came to me and said, "What are you going to give up?" Because I had my fingers in too many pies, and it was clear that I could not continue that way. So I had a small press. I shut it down, uh, turned all rights back to my authors and so forth. All my other activities, hobbies, and so forth went away, and and it came down to three things: uh, my wife, my dog, and my writing. Um, and when I wasn't succumbing to the side effects of of, of my chemo. Uh, which included things like uh, profound exhaustion and brain fog, um, I was writing. Uh, so, you know, and I didn't have very many hours a day to do it, but more than I'd spent 
writing, you know, previously in the past 30 years uh, of my career because that's all I'd left for myself. So the first year, I released 12 titles. Uh, and the second year, I released 12 titles. Uh, and it, it was crazy. And, and it really upset the people in my writer's workshop. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, I'll bet. It's like, look, here's another mom. Here's another book. Um, Boy, that's a lot of know, pressure to put on them, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, they didn't care. They didn't succumb to that. And, and they just started grumbling. Uh, and some, you know, to be fair, some of those titles were cheats. Like if I uh, released three books in a series, then I bundled them in an omnibus and said, that's the fourth book. Uh, because technically it is. It has its own ISBN and so forth. So it's a fourth book. But I didn't have to write anything really new for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a couple of those. And, and some of these, uh, because publishing has changed, uh, standalone novellas count as books. Um, and and so that worked out a little better. Um, but they're also a very different kind of book. The sort of things I, I've been writing in the Amazing Conroy universe. Uh, the... Um, and I'm blanking out on the name of the series. Uh, the series about uh, Angela Coulson, uh, alien teleporter, basically. Um, that's very light fare. It's nothing like, you know, sitting down to write Barsk. Right. Uh, Barsk, Barsk is so much more involved and works on so many different levels and has, you know, six main characters, uh, interwoven plot threads and all of that. And that's I think a very different audience than what most of the indie audience is um, you know that's and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that um, some some people like you know steak and mashed potatoes some people want uh, Coco Vaughn you know uh, and, and you're perfectly will, you know able to have one one night and a different the next night yeah, and precisely, and and my hope was uh, when I went indie, I, I am what they call a hybrid author. I've been both traditionally published and self-published. My my thought in going indie was to build up an uh, an audience and build up some uh, finances, so that I could eventually have the luxury of time to go back to pro- projects like the third Barst novel, uh, which. You know, I can't. I can't churn out three three Bars novels in three months. Uh, that does take a little more work. Yeah, yeah, and and that's okay because it's it's a different kind of book. Um, what has always amazed me is that uh, fans of my work can see my, for lack of a better term, my authorial voice in both types of work. Um, you don't have to know me to read these things and say, oh, Lawrence wrote that. He's doing that thing he does. And I, you know, it's it's really hard, and I've talked about this with other authors, it's really hard for the author to pin down what is it that makes this, you know, a Lawrence Schoen story? What is this that makes this a Jim Butcher story? What is this that makes this, you know, a Brandon Sanderson story? Uh, whatever. And it's a little it's kind of ephemeral it's it's really hard to uh lay your hands on but it, it it's it's like the old definition of pornography i'll know it when i see it um one of the things that i think marks it for me is uh, uh that your novels and your stories have i don't know it's sort of an ephemeral uh, not uh, ephemeral, not ephemeral not ineffable ah. sense sense of immersion in the environment, it feels so solid. Just even even in the quiet moments, it's just uh, it's unmistakable, and the there it's it's almost as though uh, you could smell the place. It, uh, <laughs> it has a it has a it will remain there when we've gone on somewhere yeah. else. You know, it has uh-huh. it has That's walls and ceiling. Yeah, it has it has a substance of its own. And that's uh, that is something that I think is not as common in uh, in literature as uh, as we would like to think. You know, well, we we, and, we, and we hope we hope for that in all the novels we read. But in your case, uh, it's there every time. 
Oh, you're very kind. Uh, as Susan can attest, um, I grew up reading Tolkien. And, and I brag on you that you were the, the one guy in our D&D group who could speak Elvish fluently. Well, I, don't, I think that's that's an exaggeration from memory. But, well, uh, it is well, pfft, like we knew you could be just you could have just been reciting a, a you know a recipe right. for uh, biscuits uh, for I, all we knew. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, and and somebody who's listening to this this on the radio is going to go, he mispronounced that, you know, and you're going to get you're going to hate mail for that. Uh, but one of the things that amazed me about Tolkien was that his, you know, the Lord of the Rings was an afterthought. He was world building, um, and and the fact that he created languages, you know, and then oh, I guess I better write a novel so I can drop them into my into my uh, drop in these languages I created. So when I look at something like Barris, you know, I I originally didn't plan for there to be a second book, but I said, my gosh, this world is so rich, and it's just one planet in this galaxy of worlds and only, you know, two species in this alliance of of dozens upon dozens of of uplifted animals and how can I let this I I could mine this for the rest of my life if I wanted to and never get through it all. Um I want to see you address uh, you know the the Tom and Jerry or the Bugs Bunny cartoons and <laughs> the cats well. and dogs chasing each other. There, there are, Why do I have are, this feeling? I need to chase you. Why? There, there are little Easter eggs like that in there in various places. Um, when we when we meet um, the cans uh, or the canines, the dogs, uh, in the very first chapter of Barsk, um, there are things about them. You know that that's dog behavior. Yeah, and 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 part of the challenge in writing about these things is. You know, it's it's immersing myself in in ethology, in 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 animal behavior, and saying, okay, here's something that uh, prairie dogs do, for example, because I I love the prairie dogs in in the novels, and you know, um, there's a scene in, I think the second book where this guy is going to visit a group of telepaths, most of whom are are prairie dogs. And one is waiting for the. He goes to their their building, and one is waiting for him in in the in the lobby in the ante room, and he says, "Ah, you used your your psychic ability to know I was going to come, and that's why you're here." And, and the prairie dog says, "No, there's always somebody here, because prairie dogs always post a sentry. Mm. It's what they do. It's you right. know, you oh, yeah. see you see one on the desert at at one entrance to their underground colony." And and if if predators are coming, it's that guy's job to you know sound the alarm. So prairie dogs are always there. And if you know this about prairie dogs, you sort of chuckle to yourself and say, oh, "That's cool. Good job, Lord. I see what you did there." And if you don't, it's perfectly fine. Um, and there are a number of I think of them as Easter eggs uh, like that scattered throughout uh, the books because I can. Um, but but that's part of the challenge that. One of the ways, I, and I, I talk about this at, at conventions all the time, how do you make your aliens alien? Uh, and one of the ways is to make sure they don't all look alike, they don't all act alike, they don't all sound alike, particularly if we're talking about alien language uh, convention panels uh, that I seem to do a lot. But um, pulling up certain properties of, of animals, animal species, and then not making them stereotypical. So there, there are sloths uh, in the Barsk novels, and they're as a, as a rule they're 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 more slow moving than than everybody else. But there's also a, a for a sloth a fast sloth who is not so stereotypical, um, and I mean stereotypes exist for a reason, but you don't want them to be to override individuality. Um, so I, I try not to have one uplifted animal who has whose behaviors then become representative of an entire species. You know, I want more than one, uh, and and I want them to be different. Um, Which means you did it better than Zootopia did. Well, I think Zootopia, you know, is reaching for a very different audience and <laughs> and is a very is telling a very different story. Rather, um, I thought Barsk at one level was. Everything I had to say about racism, for example, and and um, looking at it from both sides, 
because we have the font who are loathed by most of the other races in the galaxy. And then we have Pislo, who is an abomination among the font. And and they treat him worse than everybody else in the galaxy treats them. And when he encounters a non-font individual, that person, you know, despises him not because he's an outcast, not because he's an abomination, just but because he's a font. And it's a completely different experience for him. Um and so we, we get to look at, at intolerance uh, from both sides. And, and that was kind of fun because, you know, let's face it, I'm an overeducated uh, straight white guy. You know, I, I, I carry a big privilege stick, right? Um, so it's not my place to hold forth and say, here's what it's like to be, you know, African-American or Asian or Latino or... I don't know, on the autism spectrum or to be um, uh, on, on the uh, on a gender spectrum. You know, I, I'm pretty vanilla uh, with all the whiteness that that word implies. Um, so allegorically is the only way I could approach this. It's, it's like that classic Star Trek episode where the guy says, what? We're nothing alike. He's black on the left side. I'm black on the right side. And that, that, that was part, dealing with intolerance, talking about intolerance was, was part of, of uh, what I wanted to do with Bars the Elephant's Graveyard. Um, but probably, before I forget, I should mention the most fascinating thing about Bars. You know, it certainly was my biggest impact on, on readership because it came out from Tor and, and Tor mm-hmm. did very well for me by it. They, they put me on stage at Comic-Con, for God's sakes. Um, and and they pushed the book um but people would come up to me people still come up to me at events and they tell me what the book's about (laughs) and and well i don't want to say they're wrong because their experience is their experience and, and as such has total validity but it's not what i intended them to take away uh and sometimes it's gotten very odd um, but it's it's just fascinating because you know it reminds you that as an author when you put something out into the world um, it stops being yours that's and, one of the attributes of good art uh, you, you have to set it free well I was going to say that the recipient or the viewer of the art brings as much to the table as the artist does the artist can only take you so far, and then after that, it's up to the recipient to interpret it. And they interpret it according to their own uh, frame of reference, and, as, and they only can. So, uh, so you know, you, you end up with some very—you can end up with some very strange results. Yeah, and, and I think this may be a, a good definition for what makes one book literature and another book not— um, Barsk is my attempt to write science fiction literature uh, and, and it very much is concerned with the interaction between author and, and reader, what the reader brings to it um, uh, there are people who think Barsk is all about um, the Jewish experience um, and there are others who, who miss that entirely and, 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 and it never dawns on them that there's an elephant with the Hebrew letter Aleph tattooed on his forehead and what's that about? Uh, and it's about whatever you want to make it mean uh, there's what we tell you it's about in the book and you, if you want to infer that there's other things going on there, mm-hmm. hey, be my guest uh, yeah, but there is but an elephant in the room there is an elephant in the room and we do talk about it <laughs> But uh, man, Susan, what are we, Susan is across the desk. About forty minutes in me. before that one dropped. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and while we're at it, uh, Pislo, the albino child, is in fact the white elephant. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I there, assumed he there was. There we are. There see, it is. But yeah. he's, you see that that signaled to me that he was the special one. You know, it, and white elephant is not not born very often. No, but but the whole notion of a white elephant colloquially is, you know, well, that's going to be a problem. Um, yeah, something something is. nobody wants, and everybody tries to get rid of. Yeah, so he yeah. he inhabits both those definitions. But you know, I used to say 
literature as opposed to most science fiction is I don't think most science fiction is literature and I don't think most of the science fiction that I write I would never classify as literature uh, I had this conversation once with uh, my friend uh, the, the late Jay Lake who wrote very literary science fiction and I know something is literature when um, I know I know a piece of science fiction literature is over because I've run out of pages not necessarily because the story has come to a nice satisfying ending um, I'm of the tradition that I by the time I get to the end of the book I want resolution I want to know that you know the hero has has won the day and the villain has either been vanquished or redeemed and all the loose plot threads have been tied up in nice little bows you know and maybe there there's an opening for another book but but the main issues have been dealt with and and it's a very satisfying feeling and when i think of most things that i would consider literature i don't get that um well an awful lot of the the conclusions and and answers in a book uh, uh, in in literature that you might read uh, come from personal reflection after you've fi finished it. You know, they're sort of a mental denouement, if you will. So, uh, you know, well, that, is, that is one of the traits of literature is that that uh, the author may not may not be afraid to allow the reader to do that. You know, and and we we see that in cinema as well. Um, and you know, there is appealing to the masses with you know lots of explosions and car chases, um, and and we play to the big tropes, but you don't have a lot of deep conversations and insights and you know like that in the movies because that doesn't sell popcorn, um, and that's okay because sometimes you just want an escape. Uh, particularly these last two years, most of what I've been writing has been incredibly escapist. You know, I've just done it with, with you know, look, here's another weird alien race. Uh, and here's how they're not like us. Hey, listen, uh, if you can get five figures for your therapy, more power to you. <laughs> well, there is that. I don't know about the, the five figures, but... Um, well, I'm uh, hoping, you know. It's, it's, a lo it's a lovely notion. Uh, but... It's, I I'm, I don't remember who started the idea, but it's it's the beer money idea that mm -hmm. um, after you read a, a story or a novel, you shouldn't smack yourself in the head and say, "Man, I could have spent the same amount of money and gotten beer <laughs> and been happier." Uh, I want their beer money. I want them to read the book and say, "That was cool." When's the next one coming out, Lawrence? Um, you know, I I want to have aliens who, because they made a deal with their gods as as part of a a coming of age ritual, have been given the ability to to create pizza out of thin air in violation of, of the laws of physics, um, and then have that individual hunted down by by physicists for breaking the laws of physics uh, and conservation of matter, um, as one does, and and. <laughs> Why not? That's f and I get to do that, and that's fun, and it's also it's like stranger in a strange land, but with Italian food. Yeah, there you go. There was spaghetti uh, involved, but you don't want to hear very much more about that scene. No, 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 no. Uh, but it's you know we need something to take our minds off so much of the crap in the world. Uh, not 24-7, because, you know, we have to live in the world. Or, or you know, they come and repossess the car and evict you from your house. But um, every now and then, you need to turn the volume down on all the noise that's coming at you. Uh, my wife refuses to watch the news. Uh, and and I, I think she's got a good point. Uh, we... We need to stay informed, but we but we don't both have to suffer. Uh, so so I I watch it and I share the highlights that I think things she really needs to know, um, and then we just move on. But in the meantime, fiction can provide a great comfort uh, because, and again, this kind of fiction where you know by the end of the book 
the hero will win and and good will win out over evil and so forth and you don't know how it's going to happen and ideally it will surprise you oh i never saw that coming but you get that satisfying stand up and cheer moment um and if you can do it with good characterization and compelling storylines and world building all the better and these are these are the stories we tell ourselves to show our to sh- to remind us that good outcomes are possible and that they're worth fighting for. Well, more than just that, I like to believe, and this this I think comes from my training, you know, as as a hypnotherapist, that there's what there's what happens objectively out there in the world, and then there's the story we tell ourselves about what happened, uh, and. One of the things, um, and I, I don't do work with hypnosis much anymore because I don't have the time and I never actually wanted to hang up a shingle. Uh, and I mostly focus when I do it uh, on author issues like people who are have writer's block or uh, imposter syndrome or so forth. But you take the thing in front of you and you've decided, here's what I'm going to make it mean. And now it has power over my life. And you bring someone in and say, okay, here's what you're looking at. Now come with me. We're going to walk around to the other side of the room and look back at it from that perspective. And it becomes something completely different. But it's not. It's the same thing you started with. You're just looking at, at looking at it in a fresh way. And suddenly you're empowered to understand it differently. Um, and I think every story is like that. I mean, part of the point of Barsk is you've got two major villains one who wants to wipe out everybody on the planet and somebody else who despite being dead for hundreds of years is reaching forward beyond from beyond the grave through time to manipulate things to her own agenda both these people arguably by some folks would be described as evil but each of them believes they are doing the right thing to serve some greater good it's just not the greater good of our protagonist uh, but I don't think, you know, anybody wear, really in their own mind wears a black hat. There's always a way to rationalize and justify. And it, it keeps coming back to the, uh, do the ends justify the means? Well, if you're willing to embrace all of the ends, good and bad, then yes. Because I want that thing at the end. Um, this is, I was writing a, a piece um, yesterday and how many people am I allowed to kill <laughs> to uh, to produce a drug that will cure all disease? Wow. You know, and and is it okay for me to do, you know, Mengele-style experimentation for this noble purpose? You know, and, and screw the Hippocratic Oath because, you know, do no harm. Nuh-uh. Uh, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Can we Can we pull that in instead? Um, and it's a moral choice. And what do you give up? What do you sacrifice to achieve this? And and can you live with yourself? Particularly if, if there's no guarantee that it's going to work, right? I'm doing the, the experiment to see if when I'm done, I have this drug, this wonder drug. Because um, um, Brian Thorne and I did a, a trilogy called The Adrenaline Rush. And, and in it... Huh, there's an alien virus uh, that that can heal all disease, uh, and it's being—we don't know how it works yet, and we can't activate it yet. And our one of our protagonists is trying to deal with it, and it's being reissued by by my new publisher. And they said, "Here, we've run it. We, we, even though the book's been out for over a year, we want you to take a look at it because there are some things that that our beta readers are are troubled by, and one of them was." How is this doctor in good conscience doing these things? And and I was I was looking at that today and thinking, well, she is making a moral choice. But let's make that clearer for the reader because right now you're just you're just horrified that that she's going to kill this guy, and she's pretty confident she's going to kill the guy. But but it will move her that much closer to unlocking the secret that will save you know tens of thousands or more. Um, She's going to have and, to pay a price sooner or later. Yeah, there's there's always a price, right? Um, that's that's the problem I have with a lot of fantasy novels that you know, magic, 
it's just free. Um, nah. Hey, anybody uh, who played D and D knows about hit points. Nothing's free. And mana, mana points. Man. Mana points. <laughs> you know, you Taste. you can cast a powerful spell, but it's going to lay you low for three days. <laughs> Oh no no! A powerful spell is going to start taking years off your life. Ah. Or or I, I was at a convention some years ago and I said, "Okay, who here wants faster than light travel?" And of course, everybody raises their hands and they're cheering. You know, this this chorus of FTL FTL is is coming at me. And uh-huh. I said, "Okay, now let me introduce you to." And I just made this up on the spot: the puppy drive. Oh no! You're, you're, a, you're <laughs> on a generation ship, and in order to have FTL, a child on board has to come to the captain with his new puppy in hand and offer it up to the engines to drive the ship. Oh boy! And man, Suddenly... I have never seen an audience turn on me so fast. <laughs> and you'd, have, you'd, have, you'd have been killed if you'd said kittens. Sick. You inhuman bastard! And I'm saying, hey, you said you wanted FTL. Uh, What will you you pay for it? You know, there's there's always a price. Uh, And and I think a good author comes up with interesting prices, interesting consequences um, that you don't think of. You know, everybody thinks of the obvious stuff. like oh oh if you if you use this power it will make you, you you'll burn off your life it'll make you old before your time and that's nice but i i did a thing where we did it from the other we did it with a twist you're burning off your life but it's your life from the other end if you had a life expectancy of 80 years you cast the big spell you're never going to see 60 now and and you're going along in the best of health and then one day beep you're out well, I think Babylon Five pulled that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was uh, willing to pay pay that price. So there you are. It's that's right, and and that's what you have to grapple with. Um, uh, I was I was um, really bummed by uh, Le Guin's fourth Earthsea book, written you know many years after the original mm-hmm. trilogy, where it was basically well, here's why men are wizards. And and they give up sex. Uh, well, that's a and very women old this Because you know, we can do magic anytime. But it's a guy thing, and and you know, men are stupid that way. Um, but uh, oh well, uh, there are prices, and and what are we willing to pay? Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with Dr. Lawrence M. Schoen author, psychologist, hypnotist, specialist in the Klingon language, and author of Transcendent Boston and Other Stories, the Kickstarter running now, and the newest book just out, Soul Bottles, which is book number one of the Demon Codex series. Dun, dun, dun! Uh, th- uh, that one was, that's co-written with uh, Brian Thorne from LMBPN Publishing. Yes. Uh, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you with us again. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing book three in the Barsk series once you get your situation around to being able to write it. Thank you very much. I, I'm as well, and I hope people like the stuff that I managed to put out in between now and then as well. Here, here. You have been listening to episode 240 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, April 30th, 2022. Our guest this evening has been science fiction author Dr. Lawrence M. Schoen, best known for his amazing Conroy series of novels, you know, the ones with the little oxygen-farting buffaloes in them, as well as the Barsk series, with his newest book being an anthology of his own work called Transcendent Boston and Other Stories. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. 
If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, we ask you to please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge $5 a month or $10 a month, whatever you can afford, to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This episode is copyright 2022 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.